0: Welcome to another Fuds and Film podcast. This is our intermission podcast for February. i desperately to remember which month we're in. Oh wait, this is for February, isn't it?
1: Yes. Right,
0: good. For February then. <laughs> I've been ill of late, so my brain's a little bit addled. Scott's similarly ill, but see, we love you so much, we power through our illness to bring you yet more absolute nonsense about films. I am Drew Dabndale, with me, Scott Morris. Hello and let's just move on now, quite a mix of films we're going to cover in this quite a few of them have been up for awards when we're now deep into awards season one of the ones that has been talked about for awards quite a lot is The Danish Girl starring Eddie Redman. what's that all about Scott?
1: Yes uh You'll fit upon this month's theme being Things We've Seen Since <laughs> the <new> Year. <laughs> <Where> <laughs> it is set uh, 1920s-ish Copenhagen. You have Eddie Redmayne playing artist Einar Wigner and he is a landscape painter of some small round who essentially comes to realise that he's far yeah, more comfortable be. in being a, a woman than he is a man. Now this sort of transsexual thing of course is fairly common in this day and age but uh, 1926 it was something a bit more Stigmatised and a bit more unheard of So in many ways he becomes a pioneer He's married to Gerda Wegner Played by Lisa Vikander and she's initially supporting of the, this transformation, herself being a, another painter, but a portrait painter. And she takes some inspiration in producing a series of portraits of her wife, effectively at that point. But when it turns out from being something that is a, initially just a kind of silly game to kind of help her pose with these portraits, it soon becomes far more real when Einar realises that he is far more comfortable being a woman than he is being a man. And effectively the plot is... Charting that kind of relationship as it goes from, sort of initially, silliness to obviously the strains that this put on it, and eventually following through to Einar's decision to become a, well, to undergo some pioneering gender reassignment surgery, which ultimately does not go particularly well for him. It's a fictitious, love story, but it's kind of loosely inspired by the, the true story of these characters. I suppose the truth of it is probably less, less interesting than the kind of themes that it evokes, and there's a few films I think we'll talk about where it's talking about, you know, transgressing social norms at the time. Has been getting a lot of buzz for the performances and it certainly does have a a couple of fairly good performances from Eddie Redmayne and Alicia Vikander. A solid supporting cast for it as well. It's a Tom Hooper directed film, so it looks absolutely gorgeous. Most of it looks really quite affecting as much of a a portrait as the stuff that Einar's been painting. To be honest, it's one of these films that I don't really have any particular grudges with. I can't pick out anything that just is, you know, substandard or in any way bad, but it's a film that just kind of bounced off me. Um, I've I've no clear explanation for why, but I just couldn't find myself getting particularly invested in any of this. I don't know whether that says more about me at the time or I just wasn't in the mood for it or if there is something there, but it didn't have any kind of spark. It was all very prettily done and well executed, but there didn't seem to be an awful lot of heart to it. Uh, which is strange given the content of it, but it just didn't connect with me on a great many levels. As I say, I don't really have any particular uh, criticisms to level at it other than it just didn't gel with me. Uh, so that's a bit of a shame. So uh, I can't, in all honesty, recommend it, but it, I, I don't have any particularly clear reason for not not doing so.
0: I did enjoy this. It's not the most fantastic film I've ever seen. It's certainly not Tom Hooper's greatest, but I enjoyed it. The, the topic is certainly interesting, but actually in common with bit of a beef I have about something we're going to discuss later it focused more on the relationship than the reason that relationship was difficult or unusual in the setting Mm. and I feel it suffered a little for that I mean it does cover some of the difficulties that Einar's going to have with wishing to live his life as a woman or live her life as a woman and the issues there of wanting to have surgery etc but the main focus of the film really is on the relationship between the two and I kind of feel it's a bit of a missed opportunity. Again, with something that we're going to talk about later, I felt the same thing, that with it being such a difficult topic and in the time in which it's set, I mean even more so than today, the, there should be more of an exploration of the actual the physical problems, the, the actual condition. Well, condition makes it sound like it's something that's wrong, but I think you understand what I mean. Rather than just, well, these two people have... A relationship and there's a difficulty between them but that it could be any film it doesn't didn't set itself apart enough in those terms for me now, the performances are certainly good and it does look lovely see tom hooper's films do tend to look very nice they do tend to have a distinctive look as you can tell it's a tom hooper film you can also tell it's a tom hooper film for large parts of it in that seem to have forgotten people <laughs> beautiful cityscapes and things and very particular style to them but it, they seem quite empty even in like, scenes in Les Arab where it should be a, a bustling city it just feels empty and it felt the same in many shops in Copenhagen in this yeah that's perhaps a stylistic choice that maybe just I don't particularly like it, it may not be failing as such yes it's I mean Eddie Redmayne is certainly very compelling to watch in this uh, Alicia Vikander she has both less and more to do and perhaps she becomes out of this with a few more plaudits. A film like this is always going to be talked about for awards. Something like this, it kind of goes in there straight along with, or, or somebody has an act playing someone with mental illness, well, they must be considered for awards. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, it's probably more deserved than it quite often is. And it's it's a topic that actually isn't really explored enough in film. And the last time I can really remember it being a really noticeable thing was Transamerica yeah, exactly. with um, Felicity Huffman, which is a good few years ago now. And I don't think that transgender people get enough exposure anyway in mainstream media. No,
1: I mean, the only thing that was got going for it recently has really been transparent. The uh, Jeffrey, uh, what's his face, the, yeah, the Netflix uh, series. series yeah.
0: Yeah. It's almost not about the transgender issues. It's more about the relationship, and that's valid. And maybe that's the way it should be approached. I really don't know. But I did find myself wanting to to explore the transgender aspects a bit more than it explored the relationship but maybe the way they approached it is actually the way it should be done. I don't know. It's made me think quite a lot anyway in terms of how that should be approached and what people who are the subject of this would be would feel about that and in which case I guess that's successful for films making you think.
1: Indeed. I guess we'll crash onwards. Many films to get through, but this one I I suspect is going to be the best because it has the world's best actor, Keanu Reeves, in the, I'm sure, no doubt exciting police drama, Exposed, Drew. What's that about?
0: Ah, well, Exposed. It's a while since I've seen a Keanu Reeves film that wasn't Johnny Mnemonic that forced myself to cover for FUDS On film. But yes, this is a film where a police detective is investigating the murder of his partner and tries to find some sort of reason for the murder and some sort of connection with a young hispanic woman who's seen ghosts it's really awful um, <laughs> to the point where all i can really think of the plot is like this woman sees ghosts and it's really all just actually her brain trying to protect her from something horrific that happened to her and it's absolutely garbage.
1: (laughs) No, tell us. How did you really feel?
0: (laughs) There are issues in here of child abuse and police corruption and other sorts of abuse and violence towards women and it is all rather just put in the service of a rather lurid story that's also incredibly boring
1: and... <laughs> at least it's got that going for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and has ghosts, except it's not a ghost story, which is what it seems to be setting itself out as at first age and it realise that, no, these are just... This woman's coping mechanism for, like we say, our, our brain trying to chap on the... Our subconscious trying to chap on the door of our brain or saying, wake up, and some deeply unpleasant extended scenes of violence towards women in this that just made me feel deeply, deeply, deeply uncomfortable that just went on unnecessarily long. Yeah, It's just a deeply flawed film. It's massively generic. The characters are really dull and I just don't know what they thought they were doing with this film. They're taking some really serious issues and uh, kind of handling it in both a dull and not really respectful way.
1: Mm. I mean, I had... Never heard of this film at all Until you mentioned you'd seen it And were thinking of covering it for this um, But just looking through the Wikipedia page It sounds like very much like this is a, a studio uh, Intervention that's gone badly wrong the, Apparently the original story was a surreal Bilingual drama which would Reminiscent of Pan's Labyrinth and Inversible That focused on the, the issues they touch t- 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 on But the executives at Lionsgate Premier Thought they'd been shown to Keanu Reeves' cop thriller <laughs> So they've just changed it into generic crime thriller yeah. And I suspect that's Largely where it's all gone wrong
0: First so I would say it's got sod all to do with Pan's Labyrinth, you know, because Pan's Labyrinth is good, um, <laughs> which is the, the main thing that we said apart from most other films too. But they certainly got something in common with Irreversible and also they just deeply... Un- Garbage. <laughs> you know, but they're the deeply unpleasant lingering shots of abuse against women, which I just genuinely don't think serves a purpose. I don't think that helps in any way. Yeah, I don't think you need to to linger on scene with that because like these things happen to women It's not, and other people well, other people so men because th- those are the, your general two choices but <laughs> yeah these things happen to women and it's horrible but I don't see the value of making an audience sit through that I don't think in, anybody's yeah, I in mean, any I
1: mean there's there's probably a, a place for that in some kind of exploration but it's not in generic crime thriller 47
0: no no, no it's not <laughs> I don't see the value of doing that people are, I don't believe are in any doubt about quite how horrific a thing this is mm. it has no place at all in what is a very mundane police story that's supposed to be a thriller but seems to have forgotten any of the thrill part mm. this is strangest thing so it's like it's Got the world's slowest investigation because it seems to go from one to six months in a couple of days, and Keanu Reeves has done absolutely nothing. So <laughs> he's also a rubbish cop. Just one to avoid. It <laughs>
1: so, earns our seal of inverse recommendation. Yes.
0: We move on then to a, yet another collaboration between David O. Russell, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, yes, that's the money. Bradley.
1: Brad, old Brad Cooper.
0: Cooper. What's his name, yeah. I always forget his name because I think he's rubbish. <laughs> but anyway, yes. Joy. Uh, tell us about Joy, Scott.
1: Joy focuses on the titular character, Joy, who's played by Jennifer Lawrence and well, you're introduced to her uh, by her grandpa. as a inventive young kid with a, a vivid imagination who's also constantly inventing things and then it skips forward. 25-ish give or take Years later and she's a Working mother of two, working for a, an Airlines and a kind of ground crew kind of job She's been looking after her mother Who seems to have vanished from the world Her father who owned a garage is kind of separated And off doing his own thing um, Essentially she's just working the Day-to-day life of a, a kind of standard office Worker and shows none of the kind of potential That her grandmother thought that she had And essentially the story is of her Rejecting that life She leverages her, her inventiveness who rediscovers that creates a, a prototype of a, a new mop, which is a, a much better design, and eventually, after much trial and tribulation, getting it put together with the help of her uh, investment from her a somewhat reluctant investment from her family, who are in no way encouraging. She winds up becoming a successful seller on a QVC network, uh, which Bradley Cooper is in, in charge of as Neil Walker, and eventually becoming a success in her own right, navigating some patent disputes and uh, part supply issues that she's been kind of. Uh, leaned on uh, by somewhat shady characters uh, and eventually res- resolving all that and becoming a major success in the world of business. It is fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's about as far as I can go with it. It feels an awful lot like you're watching something like Silver Lightning's Playbook again or something like that. It's got a, it has a strange kind of David O'Russell vibe that he's, he seems to be getting more familiar with the work that he's doing these days as opposed to his elder stuff, which is a bit more uh, varied and I think arguably better. This seems to be him settling into a bit of a groove and it's perfectly fine, it's perfectly comfortable, but it's not particularly interesting. The main kind of interest, I suppose, comes from Joy's family, who are, frankly, comic bookly unlikable in many <laughs> places. They're, they're just ludicrous people. I don't know how accurate this is claiming to be uh, to, to life. I really hope that it isn't because they're all a bit kind of one-note, slightly crazy vultures in <laughs> a lot of it. And yeah, just... It's really unpleasant to people. As such, it makes it quite difficult to watch, but it does help you kind of root for Jennifer Lawrence's character, who is perfectly serviceable in this, but she's not really given an awful lot to do in terms of range, I don't think. So it's a bit of a, a disappointment in that regard. There's a, a simmerings of a relationship with Bradley Cooper, but it's not enough for anything like on screen enough for it to really make any impact or difference in the long term. Yeah, the supporting cast, like some and Virginia Madsen, whatnot, they're all fine. Isabella Rossellini, they're all they're all. Fine, but they just there's not really been given an awful lot to do. It's a perfectly serviceable film, and it's reasonably enjoyable. I certainly don't regret watching it, but it's. Very difficult to see where any of the sort of... It's another one that's been kind of mentioned in buzzes for best films and things like that. I just cannot see where that's coming from in the slightest. Um, since. No, it's perfectly fine. I don't want to be too harsh on it. It was an enjoyable enough watch for two hours, but best film of the last year? No, not, not even close. Not even close.
0: So, Scott, you think it's fine then? I'm guessing. Yeah. Yes, it's... Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's It's absolutely competent and that may be damning it with faint praise, which is exactly what I mean to do. (laughs) Everybody's there, they do a professional job, but nobody seems particularly enthused by their roles. Nobody's bad by any means, but there's just no enthusiasm. People turn up, do a decent enough job, get their paycheck, go home at the end of the day. Now the story itself is, it's not unenjoyable. It does or rather it is the sort of thing that could easily be like a Hallmark type movie. You know, the the young yeah. struggling mother, a single mother, she's to become an entrepreneur. And this, um, there's this new thing at the time called a television shopping channel. QVC was, was in its early days when this is set. And so that's new to her and she's exploring the world of business. And so maybe that's a wee bit elevated above where it could be just by the quality of the cast. And as Scott said, it's perfectly serviceable. The biggest problem I have with it is just that now, it could be, as you say, Scott, it's not unreasonable to suggest that Jennifer Lawrence isn't given a lot to do. But the big problem I have with it is just, I just find Jennifer Lawrence really kind of cold and unlikable in it. Or rather, yeah, it's not like I dislike her, but I just don't warm to her in this character it. I've actually found that with Jennifer Lawrence a couple of times. There's some sort of coldness and distance to her that just makes it hard for me to get invested in her, in
1: her roles. Yeah, it, it's kind of like she's using the same character from The Hunger Games in Joy. Yes, yeah, you know? very uh, much like that. That kind of cold distance and while that worked very well in Hunger Games, it's, it's not a fit for this film, which is strange because when you ever see her interview, she's she's actually really charming and quite likeable. Yeah, Very mean, bubbly. I don't know why she so, comes across as <coughs> such a cold fish in some films.
0: Yeah, I mean, because if you look at something like you know, A Real Breakthrough role was Winter Spawn, mm. and I was massively engaged with her character in that and even if so kind of almost throw away stuff like X-Men First Class you can warm to a character but there have been other things and this is probably the most obvious example There were just there's a coldness to her that yeah. now whether that's direction or whether that's her acting choice I'm not really not sure but it, it makes it very difficult for me to get much engaged in the film at all I, I'm watching this and like all her family are unlikable but she's so cold that I don't really care what happens to anybody <laughs> again it's yeah, I don't regret watching it either it's not a terrible film by any means but competent is really the the highest level of praise i could give it and it's there's not one thing about it that's in any way awards worthy yeah and once again i just find myself utterly baffled by what gets awards and nominations this time of year
1: yeah it's a real puzzle real puzzle
0: well the theme of this podcast really is stuff that we've seen because of the time of year where a lot of the films we're talking about are been talked up for Oscars and Golden Globes etc. Yet another one of those is a story of a lesbian relationship in the 1950s is it? Yes. Tell us a wee bit more about that Scott.
1: In Carol you are introduced to a young shop worker Therese Belvier. I forget if that's how it's pronounced but that's Rooney Maris' character. She's working a a life in New York as a, a shop clerk and is introduced, well comes across the Carol Airds, who's Kate Blanchett's character. Uh, Carol is trapped in a loveless marriage that's about to come to an end. Her husband, Kyle, played by Harg... Harg Aird? I've never had to pronounce that before. Um, Yeah, so their relationship is kind of on the rocks, but she's still happily looking after her her kid. Effectively, it is simply a love story between these two who meet and uh, there's a spark and fall in love and do the kind of things that you do when you fall in love. Uh, The difference of course in this instance being that it's rather less acceptable in polite society in the 1950s New York to have a lesbian relationship and this causes friction between her and the when it eventually becomes known that it's happened to that this is going on. Her husband kind of uses that as a lever to prove that she's an unfit mother because of her social deviancy and Tries to get full custody of the children out from from underneath her, which of course then leads to certain strains between the relationship between Carol and Therese. Another film that is you know, talked about in awards, and I'm not completely sure why, having seen it now, it's again perfectly acceptable. The um, Todd Haynes directs and has some again, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely produced film. And all the production values are incredibly high. It looks lovely, um, lots of period detail. It's all very nice in that regard. Central performances can't really fault them. Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara do an incredible job. There's not an awful lot in the way of support to be had in this film that's largely focused on those two characters, but they do a great job in carrying that off. I think the central problem with it is I think I think it's what you were touching at earlier. The relationship itself is focused on to the extent of you know, to, to an awfully large extent and it doesn't really cover any of the complications caused by the fact that they're lesbians and in that time and that's while, exactly yeah again as you were saying you know, perhaps that is the way we should be treating these kind of things it's, it's not actually particularly interesting in and of itself they meet they fall in love and that's it it's a perfectly common or ordinary story and it's a it's a well-told romance but there's nothing in particular novel about that. It's very strange, I think it's, it, in a way, it's good that we're treating these things as uh, as no more we're not focusing on how, how terrible it was in, in the past, but then again that's really intrinsic to the point of this. The interest comes from the se- the time period And if you're not going to really look at social impact of what's going to happen here, other than some fairly minor, you know, looks around the edges at it, Mm -hmm. I kind of wonder what the point is. So it's, it's a frustrating film in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the same ground was covered far better in his 2002 effort, Far From Heaven. Which uh, has its problems by itself, but it's a much more interesting way of approaching it than than this one has been. But again, I don't want to be too harsh on it because it's quite enjoyable, and it's really well produced and it's really well acted. But at the same time, I think it's it's missing a trick. It's not it's not really exploring the interesting parts of this romance. The that it explores are actually a bit pedestrian. Maybe that's just because we're you know products of a different era. You know, the LGBT rights are probably not where they should be, but they're far more advanced than they were when you well know, even when I was a when I was a younger man myself. So. It's it's, it's maybe nothing like as shocking or interesting anymore. So it's, it's just reduces Carol to being simply a, a competent romance, and that's fine. But I was kind of expecting a bit more, a bit more in the way of commentary on how this this was fitting into the society at the time. So bit of a missed opportunity. But then again, it's still quite a good film but yeah
0: missed opportunity is exactly the phrase i would use scott this is the film i was referring to earlier i think far from heaven did a perhaps more interesting job and it did have his failings too you know like for instance the fact it's got dennis quaid in it yeah your favorite <laughs> yes um my benchmark for zero charisma <laughs> but yeah it's a missed opportunity because certainly uh, even now it can be difficult for two women to have a relationship and that's wrong but things are so much better than they were in the 1950s and it's just it never really touches on that and that's again like I said and you echoed me to that maybe maybe that's not how that should be approached that's certainly a, a point worthy of discussion but it just does feel that it's just it's a, a romance that where they happen to be lesbian whereas in the time that it's set the difficulties that must have created they just kind of brush over them yeah you see, it just it does come in just round the edge and but they never really get their teeth into, in the film, get their teeth into that, that side of it. That how difficult that must have been, wrongly of course, but how difficult that must have been. Yeah. The real problems that would cause the, the problems with society, the problems with jobs and friendships and things that, that were far more likely to be a, an issue then. And it just sort of, they're kind of floating in the background and there are hints of them here and there. But they never really sink their teeth into and, and tackle it. And so yeah, it becomes a yeah. fairly ordinary romance story and it's not an unlikable film. And as you say, it's, it's well produced, it's well acted. Again, not worthy of awards for anything. Mm. Um, but it's it's a film that it wanted much more out of and I was left feeling disappointed that there was nothing more to it. It just had needed more substance for what it covers and when it covers it that's really the issue uh, when this was set because if you wanted to just do a romance between two women we'll set it now if you're setting it in the 1950s there's got to be a reason for that and that's because of it being a much bigger social taboo back then Yeah, but then it just sort of shies away from it completely mm-hmm. yeah
1: I agree, I mean I don't want to underplay either Kate Blanchett or Rooney Mara's performance or the writing that's gone into it They're both, they're well realised and believable characters The romance elements of it are you know, absolutely perfect No complaints about that at all It's just really that it's ignoring a, an elephant in the room That I think it should have at least been pointed at a bit more often uh, If this was going to be anything you know out of the ordinary uh, As it is, it's a solid, solid romance story. No complaints in that uh, regard at all. But yeah, it feels like it's trying to be something more than it it's reaching for something more than it can actually grasp with its uh, setting and the implications that that involves. So yeah, as I say, a missed opportunity. So then, from that I think we'll go on to the very similarly themed The Good Dinosaur. (laughs) Drew, what's all that about?
0: Yeah, this is the latest from Pixar. Weird to see two Pixar films within one year. It is Remarkable in one respect, in that it's possibly the least Pixar Pixar film I've ever seen. <laughs> now, if you've followed us over from the one line, you'll know that while we think Pixar at its height, particularly the Toy Story films, is just some of the greatest animated filmmaking ever made, we aren't quite so enamoured of Pixar as other people have. Not that a lot of their stuff is bad, but a few films like Ratatouille, etc we have described before as Pixar by Numbers. Still typically a step above a lot of other animation, but they don't we don't always believe that they've like can do no wrong. But in this case, I would say they've come pretty close to it. It's looking like it might be a flop commercially, certainly it's a bit of a flop critically, because this is the as I say, the least Pixar Pixar film I've ever seen and I've never seen a Pixar film quite so thin. Mm. and so deeply unimaginative which is the the most shocking thing about it really because what pixar does tend to have is imagination in space now whether it lands quite as well as they hope is up for debate but they tend to be pretty inventive i'll tell a little bit about it first if you're not familiar with it it is the story of dinosaurs ruling the world so 65 million years ago the asteroid that Wiped out the dinosaurs for real. This time passes the earth by. And where there would be people, there are in fact um, dinosaurs instead. That's it. So we have Arlo, who lives with his mum and dad and his brother and sister on a farm. And he's a sort of the runt of the family. He's a bit clumsy, a bit scared. Nothing's going right. Then one day, while his dad's trying to teach him to be a brave young man, his dad dies and then he gets separated from his family and has to work his way back and if that at all sounds familiar that's because it's about got shares the same bit of plot as about a good dozen other films at least (laughs) i mean there's bits in here of the jungle book the lion king the incredible journey homeward bound the land before time ice age it seems to to share a lot with and it's not a patch on any one of those, even the least of those. It's when I mean, it's a beautiful-looking film. There are some really magnificent water effects. The the landscapes look beautiful, but that in itself is the problem, because while other Pixar films have looked really beautiful and or at least are visually arresting, look at the the decaying earth of. The beginning of Wally with all the the rust tones and things that and the low sun looked stunning. But what you remember about Wally's Wally and what he was doing, whereas in this, all that's really memorable is the landscape, the water effects, that sort of thing. And that's not really been the case with a Pixar film before. No, it's so ordinary. And again, it's just something that Pixar typically not been guilty of. It's very very derivative. The characters are unremarkable. There are a a flock of pterosaurs or pterodactyls in here that kind of, they make you think of things like the seagulls in Finding Nemo or even like the crows in Dumbo, but they are not in any way memorable. It's like it's trying so hard to to capture what works in other films it completely fails. And Mm. there's even bits of the design too. There's something about the design of Arlo and the other dinosaurs that feels so... They just look very like Wallace and Gromit, quite frankly. Um, And everything about this film, is like just... Instead of doing what Pixar does so well at its best, which is creating things that are new and different, even like for Toy Story, inspired by toys, obviously, but they did their own thing. All of the good dinosaur just feels like it was done not well, as a pastiche or even an homage, but it's more like they just put bits and pieces together of all these films that they liked and it's like, Well, we'll, we'll just stick them in, that'll do. And it doesn't work. The story is really perfunctory. I mean, it's certainly not an unenjoyable film. There are you know, moments of humour and the little, um, sort of cardical spot who's, you know, kind of a primitive human, whereas the, the dinosaurs rule the earth and, uh, that's the kind of comic relief. it's kind of like a wee dog, basically. And it's, there's some touchy moments in the character, it's quite fun. But it's, I was going to say, it's really ordinary. It's not even ordinary. It's massively subpar. It's subpar for any animation, quite frankly, let alone Pixar. And they really just seem to have let themselves down. This is the first genuine failure in a Pixar film, which in itself is sad, but I, mean, I suppose had to come. And maybe it was necessary for that to come at some point, but it's a film that just lacks imagination, lacks heart, and just leaves you feeling kind of disappointed.
1: Mm. I've not seen this film, but if you're saying it's worse than Cars 2, I'm not going to see it um, at all. Oh, it is actually uh,
0: worse than Cars 2. Well, well, in some ways, Cars 2 was dull, but it was like, Cars 2 had a definite sense of style and place, Mm. and even though it wasn't good, they're memorable characters even if one of those was a phoned-in Michael Caine performance.
1: But, and i it's back okay. I, I'm a car.
0: I think when you watch cars too, you're like, well, here's these cars doing these things. Um, whereas yeah. you watch The Good Dinosaur, so you're like, oh, that water's very pretty. Yeah. And honestly, you're yeah. focusing
1: on entirely wrong thing. And, and honestly, um, I think that might have come from the, the fact that the animators appear to have a lot of time to get that kind of thing right because it's gone through such development hell <laughs> in terms of what's gone was it two years late? It went through like massive rewrites. The director left, the producer left. Um, it is a troubled birth, this one. And it sounds very much like they, they were having problems cracking the third act. And I think they managed to uh, solve that by not being able to crack any of the acts going by what you we were saying.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, you can see that they're, they're trying to have the story, but it's, it is so, it's so generic and so derivative in almost every way and everything just seems like it's a a nod to some other film, whether that's intentional or not, I really don't know. But it feels that way. And apart from it being so similar to those other films that I mentioned, while I was watching this, particularly because there's like the the dinosaurs are in charge and the like the humans like the pet because they're they're not evolved yet. The thing that I keep thinking about is that if I wanted to see something where the dinosaurs were like humans, and they ruled the world. And it was a genuinely inventive, genuinely funny. I just watched Jim Henson's great nineteen nineties series, yeah. Dinosaurs, yeah, <laughs> um, which is still entertaining today. Um, and it just it kept me when you think of that. Through, and I'm thinking, dinosaurs had a genuine spark to it. I mean, the idea maybe wasn't even particularly original then, of like the dinosaurs being kind of like humans, but that was really funny. It was really well made. It had heart. And the good dinosaur it just doesn't. It just it's missing I know it's a rather nebulous term to use, but it's certainly missing any magic that makes the best of Pixar so very, very special. Yeah. And when you're watching a Pixar film and although the men were always they're improving the technology and the power of their computing and they're trying new animation techniques. And you look at maybe something like Monsters Inc. And when that was coming out, there was talk about like, how difficult it was to render all those hairs and Sully, um, that sort of thing. But when you watched Monsters Inc., what you thought about afterwards was like the the repartee between the characters, the the story that, and the laughs. And again, the good dinosaur. You're thinking, yeah, that sunset was nice, wasn't it? It's <laughs> It really is um, a low point for Pixar and lower than I thought they were even capable of going. Yeah, I I am disappointed. Let me move on to a series that certainly I have particularly liked over the years with one notable exception. And we move on to Creed which is being called a spin-off from Rocky but it's not as clearly Rocky 7. Um, Yes. (laughs) It's clearly a sequel to Rocky Balboa, so it's Rocky 7. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Scott.
1: Yes, well, I suppose the, the main difference comes from the, the, guy, the guy in the ring is no longer Rocky Balboa, but it is uh, an illegitimate son of Apollo Creed, who was then kind of taken in by uh, Creed's widow, Adonis Donnie Johnston. and He is raised up to, well, well he has a, a lot of fight in him as a kid when he was abandoned by his uh, his mother and goes through a series of uh, foster homes and such like. After he's taken in by uh, Creed's widow, he kind of smartens himself up, uh, cleans himself, gets a a proper job at an investment banking kind of thing. But it's not really him. As it turns out, he's got too much of his father in him and he can't stop uh, going after the fights. Uh, So he, he winds up becoming a boxer and taking part in a somewhat less glorious uh, Mexican bar fight circuit which appears <laughs> to be running on down there. However, he d- decides that he should go off and try and train to get into the big leagues and he decides that the best way to do that is to track down Rocky Balboa in Philadelphia and try and get convince him to train him. And that, after a bit of uh, doing and froing, is what happens. He uh, trains him, becomes a-, a reasonably competent fighter, takes on uh, one of the, the kind of local champions and wins that. However, as part of this, word leaks out that uh, Adonis is a creed, and that gets its way through to the current uh, light heavyweight champion of the world, a Pretty Ricky (laughs) something-or-other from Liverpool, and he's facing a... He's he's currently looking down the barrel of some uh, extended jail time, and so he's looking for one kind of last payout to kind of ensure that his family can... Uh, has enough money to get by But he's off on the inside Typical Um So the, After A bit of heart searching He decides Creed decides he'll take this fight And while he's training To get in For the big time It turns out that Rocky's actually Diagnosed with cancer And so he, he has to fight that Just as Creed has to f- get into shape and to get into preparation for the biggest fight of his life. It has a number of parallels uh, particularly in the fights towards the end with the first Rocky film. Creed kind of taking the role of Rocky but with a bit more a bit more mobility, I think it's fair to say. I think the, the main takeaway from it is that it's uh the story itself is pretty competent. There's nothing amazingly outstanding about it, but it's uh, it's a really well told story, but I think that what really sells it is the relationship and the, the charisma, the chemistry between Michael B. Jordan as Adonis and Sylvester Stallone as Rocky, and that is really the, the heart of it. They're, they're sparring verbally more than physically in this instance. Uh, really does kind of make this film uh, something that is very enjoyable to watch. Uh, it's on what you might call technically, on technical levels, it's probably worse than the, some of the films we've spoken about so far, like Danish Girl and Joy and Carol, but I enjoyed this more, um, as I've enjoyed almost all of the Rocky films.
0: Apart from Five.
1: Apart, yeah, apart from Five. Five is one of those films where you know the idea is perfectly sound, but the execution turned out to be quite poor. I, I, I see what they were going for with Four, but it doesn't have anything like either the, the heart of the first couple of films or just the, the out and out cheese ball nature of Rocky IV or anything yeah. like that to, to to kind of to hang on it, but it's easily as good as Rocky Balboa, which I was very fond of. The mm-hmm. film from gosh when's that seven, no longer that two thousand six was that was like I forget exactly two thousand six something like that it would be about right yeah. Rocky Balboa. Yeah, so that was uh, also a, a particularly good film, and that had that was a, a plot which was. Stretching credulity somewhat, but it's still kind of nice to float my boat based on the, uh, again, some just some, a great performance by Sylvester Stallone and the, the one character that I think he understands better than anything else. And uh, Creed is up there with the best of the Rockies, I would say. It's an incredibly enjoyable film to watch and uh, yeah, it has some really great, great fighting scenes towards the end of it and memorable, likeable central performances. There's uh, I've not mentioned the relationship between Adonis Johnson and Bianca the, his girlfriend Tessa Thompson but that's perfectly competent as well uh, but yeah there's, there's a lot of things to like in this film and not a lot of things to dislike uh, if you liked any of the Rocky films before then you're going to have a great time with Creed and I, I think this is a great way to introduce a whole new generation of fans into the Rocky franchise so yeah I heartily recommend it.
0: Yeah I don't have much to add to what you've said Scott because I largely feel the same. I've always been fond of the Rocky films I do like a good boxing film but Rocky has always been a touchstone for those. I mean, I think there are better films. Yeah. I think perhaps Rocky are amongst the most enjoyable because yeah, you've got exactly. I mean, the original, I think is still the best and it's still Sylvester Sloan's best role ever because he, bless him, he tries in other things, but um, yeah. in Rocky, he's actually genuinely good. Yeah. And then you can kind of disregard Rocky too, because it is Rocky one with a different ending.
1: Yeah.
0: Then <laughs> yeah, you kind of the kind of more cheesy ones with your, I uh, have Rocky 3 with Clubber Lang was played by the uh,
1: inimitable Mr. T. You know, then T. I think you'll find he's very clearly imitable. Uh, <laughs> Lots of imitations of that has been going on for some time.
0: The classic, classic Rocky 4. Cheesy, daft, fun. Skip over 5 and then we get to Rocky Balboa. And I think this is probably closest to Rocky Balboa. I was very fond of Rocky Balboa as well. It's a film where Sylvester so just inhabits his character so well, even if he has a smaller role in this. Mm-hmm. It's always entertaining in the role of Rocky and then you've got this good repartee with Michael B. Jordan. The film has heart and yeah. and that's key. If the film didn't have heart if you couldn't get emos- em- 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 emosted emosted I've invented you emotionally invested or emosted Um, for efficiency of speech in most in these characters it wouldn't work uh, because the boxing is, is entertaining enough but it's the the interplay between the characters that really makes it as it has done with the other Rocky films and it's just a very very enjoyable watch and it's not Rocky V for which we shall all be grateful.
1: <laughs> yeah, anyway, we tried to solicit some opinions on Twitter. Uh, one one in particular on Creed from Rich Smith that's Smidgy87. because says, Creed is phenomenal and it takes Rocky back to where it belongs. Gritty, emotional and powerful, yet still cheesy and fun. The only thing I disagree with that is it uh, taking Rocky back to where it belongs because I thought Rocky Balboa was also doing a pretty good job of that as well. But other than that, yep, agree totally.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, more or less agree with that, yeah, because not so sure about gritty i think rocky has never been particularly gritty film crunchy though because of the boxing certainly yeah honeycomb center yeah but um yeah uh, and i would agree to i don't think it ever lost it but it returned to it with rocky balboa they do have fair bit in common i think almost like uh adonis in this film is kind of like the extension of the guy that was marie's son in rocky balboa yeah but otherwise yeah i'd agree with his comments
1: so, I, I guess from the boxing ring we will turn to international finance with *The Big Short*.
0: Yes, um, international finance—that—that that exciting world that actually has been known to make for a compelling film before, because there's a film I think we were both very fond of, Scott, from a few years ago called *Margin Call*. *Margin Call*, Call yeah, um, which yep. is about the the same crisis, the financial crisis of 2007-2008. Yep. So this time, this is a comedy. Of sorts, at least it aims to be directed by Adam McKay, and it's about one character in particular, which is what's his face, Steve Carell. Well, I suppose two actually, Christian Bale, Steve Carell, two people who have tried to warn people about the impending crisis. Christian Bale is plays a. Financial analyst who has seen that there's a weakness in the system. His research into this, his betting against the stock market, becomes highlighted to Steve Carell's banker. And he starts looking into it and sees that basically the whole thing is a house of cards and could fall at any moment, but nobody can see it coming. And then it tries to explore and explain, if it can, what caused it, why nobody saw it coming, and also all of the tremendous bull hockey. Since we're trying to keep this um, a non-sweary podcast, all the trend is bullhawking around the financial market and basically how people try to obfuscate what is actually fairly straightforward by using lots of jargon and trying to make it seem like specialist knowledge. I was trying to break that down for the audiences. It uses a lot of techniques like breaking the fourth wall quite a lot. And to be honest though, I didn't actually find it all that entertaining and I had been looking forward to this. There's a fantastic cast I mean, it has Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell and Christian Bale all of whom I'm very, very fond of. Um, Adam McKay has great pedigree as a comedy director. And after Margin Call in particular, I I noticed that this can be actually a really compelling subject. The Margin Call was tremendously tense. Yeah. And very, very effective. Again, it also had a superb ensemble cast. Big Shot, though, falls a bit flat for me. It's... Breaking the fourth wall adds absolutely nothing to the film at all. I'm not, it's like you can have like Ryan Gosler turn the camera and go ah and this is a bit where my where I did this and honestly no I wasn't I wasn't taken in by this at all and I, it doesn't really add anything it seems to be being lauded greatly simply because they keep using the word fraud I don't yeah. think anyone was in doubt there was a fraud but I've heard a few different like, interviews and podcasts where people have said that oh it's so great you kept putting the word fraud and accounting you said the word fraud 16 times like I don't think anybody was in any doubt nobody's happy that people (laughs) didn't get prosecuted for this but that was unfortunately the the way of the world and the will of government is to not do anything about this doesn't have any great revelation although i mean it's reasonably interesting to see i mean at least there's a bit of a compelling story you're trying to see how exactly it went steve carell just getting deeper and deeper into despair as he sees how much of a fiction, the whole banking yeah. of the world is, and how people are basically making bets on bets on bets on bets on things that never really existed in the first place, and that's how the financial bubble happened. Yeah, but it's just in the end not fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's certainly not the kind of film I would have expected from the director of Talladega Nights. No, not at all. Uh, I I probably enjoyed it more than you did. Uh, I think it, it kept me entertained. We'll give it that much. I think it's. I think in aiming to be kind of funny and entertaining, it kind of misses a trick. Uh, Margin Call played the drama of it far more, played up the the drama aspects of it far more. And it's a much more effective film for that. and I think it's more suited to something a bit more sombre than it is this, which seems to have been written... In a way that is trying desperately to get you for to forget that it's about finance. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, in a sense, that is why it's throwing so many characters into the film that really don't need to be there. And it, it, it's kind of fortunate that they managed to attract a lot of star power into it because, I mean, there's some guys there. I mean, the kind of arc with the two younger investors and Brad Pitt's character, the two guys, uh, John McGarrow and Finn Whitrock, and their one, that is entirely superfluous. There's, there's no need for all that entire thread to be there And, and frankly there's, there's almost no point having Christian Bale's character being there Apart from the fact that he was the guy, kind of guy that saw it first But um, a lot of it really comes down to... to- mark baum's character who's really kind of the the emotional and uh the angry heart of it all mm. there, there's an awful lot of tricks that have really been used to kind of distract you from that and it's very plain about it it's 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 not even trying to trick you on that basis it's, it's pointing out that here's a here's something that might be a little bit complicated so here's a here's here's a pretty lady in a bath to explain it to you <laughs> you know things like that and uh, i kind of respect that uh, that degree of brazenness and i s- suppose from that level. I did, I certainly enjoyed it well enough. Gosh, I mean, talking for about film of the year, I would, I would certainly never have thought anything like this would have been no, I... uh, mentioned on it for any number of reasons. I mean, it's perfectly entertaining, I think, but this it's just not, nothing amazing.
0: Again, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's another one of these films I'm utterly baffled about the the awards talk for it. Clearly I haven't enjoyed it as much as you. It's not to say I didn't enjoy it. The performance is good. I mean there are some funny bits in it. I mean the breaking of the fourth world does nothing for me but it's not a not a bad film by any means and Steve Carell tremendously dodgy wig aside is is like as you say the emotional heart of the film and he, he's very watchable in this. Film of the year? Screenplay um, nominations things? No I don't get it. It's a it's a serviceable film, but it doesn't come close to margin call in terms of its effectiveness for a film about this topic.
1: Yep, agree. The next up on our list is another one that's been touted, I think probably less less vigorously than some of the other films we're talking about, but for the award season, uh, Concussion with Will Smith. Uh, Drew, you've seen that, so why don't you tell us about it?
0: Yes, um, there's not too much to say about this film, Concussion, because not that it's a bad film, it's a very well-produced film, it's a well-acted film, it is... I was going to say ordinary, ordinary is not really the word, it's competent, it's an interesting story, it just doesn't have anything that makes it stand out particular. First of all, apart from its terrible, terrible, terrible title, Concussion, a tremendously boring title, it's actually based on an expose that was written in GQ called Game Brain, much better name. Why they didn't use that for the film, I've no idea. It's about the doctor who was at the forefront of investigating the the brain damage that was happening to American football players after repeated concussions and the massive impacts that their skulls were receiving. This guy, a Nigerian forensic pathologist called Dr. Ben Omalu, had been doing this research after a couple of very famous NFL players' bodies had ended up in his lab, and he'd found all this evidence of brain damage and the mental illness they were suffering beforehand because th- these people were dying of suicide and they found out there were a tremendous number of people suffering from this his research was suppressed by the NFL and he tried to basically just stuck to his principles and his career was ruined for a while by these people trying to stop and say oh no you're wrong so that's the story basically it's the NFL is trying to suppress this information because it would cost them I mean, the NFL massive business. And there's a quote in the film, which kind of gives you an idea of this. Like, you see, like Sunday used to be God's day and now Sunday's owned by the national football league. The NFL is, is unbelievably big business in the United States. It's a billion dollar industry, a multi-billion dollar industry. And they thought that this research would reduce their revenues. And so instead of caring about the welfare and health of their players, They cared about the money. We've all heard that one before. So in this, you just have Will Smith, who, the Will Smith's entirely watchableness, his accent, however, borderline comical. Really not a fantastic accent, but that's a, (laughs) you can actually get past that because he's very watchableness. as Will Smith tends to be. He plays Dr. Amalu, and it just, the film follows him and the way that even the NFL manages to get the FBI involved to try and discredit him and his boss, Albert Brooks. It's fairly procedural. I mean, it's nothing remarkable that you haven't seen before, but it's an entertaining film, well acted, well made, just unremarkable. But it's certainly worth catching up with them, maybe when it's on TV at some point. Wouldn't we'll knock your pan out to, to catch up with it now, though.
1: Eddie Marsden's in it, so shout out to Eddie. Eddie Marsden, isn't it?
0: It's a rather small role, isn't it? I do like Eddie Marsden a good deal. It's not the the best role he's ever had, though, but yeah, it's always nice to see Eddie Marsden pop up in things. Mm hmm. Okay then, so yet more awards bait once again for Alejandro González Ignorito this time The Revenant right before I swear any if I start speaking about The Revenant and using the word pish a lot. Scott, maybe you could tell us a little about The Revenant.
1: We are transported back to the 1820s and a group of trappers, one of which is Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Hugh Glass, who's kind of leading this exposition, at least in terms of tracking and such like, is wandering around in the snowy wastes, at which point they're come across by a bunch of Native Americans who launch a surprise attack and kill an awful lot of the group that was going there. The survivors include, of course, DiCaprio himself, and you have Tom Hardy as John Fitzgerald, another trapper, Hugh Glass's son, who is... Hawk, who also is half Native American, and Will Pooter as Jim Bridger, who's a, the youngest member of the party. And they're nominally led by Dom Hall Gleason's Andrew Hendry as the kind of captain of the party. So these guys escape and manage to shuffle off downriver, but uh, soon more tragedies befall poor Hugh. He's scouting ahead when he's uh, mauled by a grizzly bear. Presley manages to take him with her, but uh, uh, he's left very badly wounded and while the rest of the party, after trying to carry his his not quite lifeless body back. For some distance, they eventually decide that hes they're not going to be able to make it, they're not going to be able to escape the Native Americans who are tracking them unless they leave him to his fate. He's left behind with uh, Tom Hardy and Will Poulter and his son to kind of see him off and give him a proper burial, but uh, that Goes a little bit astray when Tom Hardy's character decides he can't quite be bothered with this whole waiting nonsense and uh, engineers things to speed things up, uh, largely by killing Glass's son, and turns out he didn't do quite a good enough job. Hugh pulls himself out of his his grave and somehow manages to convalesce and start, start tracking down John Fitzgerald, Tom Hardy's character, with the thought of extracting vengeance upon him. I have very little to say about The Revenant, it's another film that was just... There for Mm. me It sounds very much like You're going to rip into it And I'm tempted just to to Yield the floor to you I thought it was okay But I didn't think anything Particularly much of it One way or the other To be honest with you Uh, It didn't really hold my attention Particularly well Sure it's a It's a kind of an Impressive tale of survival I suppose But it just didn't really Make any real impact on me And I didn't really care An awful lot about any of it Sounds like you may have some Rather stronger views, so perhaps I'll look into
0: it. Actually, to be honest, no. For the most part, I didn't care, but I'm more slightly angry about everybody talking about Innuendo you know, getting Best Director again, or it being Best Picture. Or Leonardo DiCaprio getting a Best Actor Oscar. Keep on thinking, why? Why would that be the case? Nothing happens in this film. Nobody <laughs> does anything, and then it ends. This film just didn't engage me at all. It's really boring. Nothing much of import happens at all. Leonardo DiCaprio has been talked up for actor and I like Leonardo DiCaprio a great deal and really I think he ought to have received an Oscar for The Wolf of Wall Street in which he's utterly fantastic. In this film, it's not that he's not fantastic, he's got sod all to do. He barely speaks, he just lies there for most of the film. Tom Hardy comes out of it a bit better but he does for a good 50% of the film sound like Buffalo Bill from Sounds of the Lambs
1: in the way he (laughs) speaks.
0: It was driving me crazy for a good half hour. I was like, why, who does he remind me of? Who does he remind me of? Like, oh, I like, know what it is. He's going to ask somebody to put the lotion on their skin in a moment. That's what it is. <laughs> I just simply didn't care about anything that was happening. I didn't care about any of the characters because there basically weren't any. I mean, there, there are no characters in this film. It's what really irritated me about it, I think. For the rest of mm. it, I simply wasn't engaged, but there, there were no characters. There were just some men and they're in the woods. And then there's a bear. Uh,
1: <laughs> and then there's a bear. <laughs> you know, That's a whole story. I end. think you're
0: supposed to be shocked by the things that happened to Leonardo DiCaprio, but he's not anybody you've kind had any reason to care about before, up to that point. So why would you? No. Nobody, nobody, because apart from the fact that people barely speak in the film for most of it, Leonardo DiCaprio is just a person who's on screen along with some other people who are on screen, and the men have some some men with beards, and they're in the woods, and <laughs> then there's a bear. Okay, I like bears. I like the bear immediately because it's a bear. But yes, so just, it's just a really, really boring film. I mean, it's it shot nicely. That's, I mean, the one thing you can maybe say for it. It's got nice photography, Um, mm-hmm. even though I questioned quite why some of the camera moves were what they were, but it's a pretty film. And then there's a bear. And to be honest, if there'd been more bears, maybe it'd be more exciting. But uh, if Leonardo DiCaprio gets an Oscar for this, it'll be because he didn't get it for The Wolf of Wall Street and should have done. It'd be on Make a Good Oscar, yeah. which we've seen more than once <laughs> before. There isn't really a great deal of direction happening in the film. Nothing of anything important happens in the film at all. And I think it's kind of telling that the bits that I remember most are the bits that were driving me kind of crazy because they made no sense. Like It's like, nothing of the character stuck with me really because they don't have any. But there is one point when Leonardo DiCaprio is absolutely starving and he finds a bison carcass that he's been sharing with a... A Native American and he eats bits of this bison raw. When he's two feet away from a fire. And that's like oh that's, <laughs> that's my abiding memory of that. It's like I didn't care that this cart had been starving. It's like, why is he not cooking it? There's a fire right there. So yes, that that exercised me a bit and the rest of it just mostly just passed me by because I didn't care about anything or anybody in it. It's another one I was utterly baffled by the war buzz for. There's nothing a yeah, for Monday life for this. See
1: why you'd have DiCaprio was up for a best actor. I mean his performance in this is grimace. Yeah, I mean understandably why he would do that. But I mean that's all he's doing for like what an hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, of this film is a grimace, and
0: it isn't. It <laughs> genuinely isn't a criticism of Leonardo DiCaprio. He doesn't have anything to do. He doesn't have a character, right? And it's not yeah. even like the big problem with the story is it's not even like you can say he it hasn't been directed. There's nothing to direct. Nothing happens. There's yeah. no story. That's why I'm, I feel like I'm getting a bit shrill here because I'm now... Uh, okay, maybe I'm laying into a wee bit of Scott. There was no story in this film. So there was no acting. There was no character. There was no direction to be done because nothing happens. And then there's a bear.
1: I mean, certainly if you compare this to... I mean, his last film was Birdman, which you know you've got your issues with. But I mean, that had so much excitement and so much character back and forth. It had so much going on. It had lots of lovely little touches and this in comparison is very static yeah. and very one note and it doesn't really have anything that grabbed your attention and it's at 2 hours 36 minutes it needs more oh, yeah, than this but i mean that is a very long sludge in the middle of that this film it's at least uh, now uh, you- to it's
0: To be honest with you, Scott, this film's actually an hour and a half too long.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's not far off, isn't it? Uh, Um,
0: When we discussed Birdman, I'd mentioned like I like and also don't like Birdman. And I've never quite made up my mind. I've not seen it a second time yet, but I do want to. But Birdman is undeniably interesting. Now, Whether you like it or not, that's a separate issue. But there's a lot going on there. The performances are definitely compelling and interesting. There's a story to it there's a lot going on there's things that are actually happening in that film none of which is the case with The Revenant
1: yeah there's there's no spark and no energy in The Revenant at no,
0: all no there's no there's <laughs> no anything in The Revenant and then there's yeah. a bear
1: I mean, let's not minimise the bear. That was a really good bit. That was a good bit of bear action, but the rest of the film, not so much.
0: Yeah, I think I probably would be less annoyed about this if it hadn't been talked up about for awards again. And not just because it's Iñárritu getting talked up for awards because they're always never worthy, um, but it's only been happening for years now. But it's mm-hmm. just, that every time it comes to this to me, it's why I hate the Oscar. I just don't care about it. I used to and I have no idea now why. It's because they just keep giving stuff to the wrong people. <laughs> and even if it was like just the wrong people they were giving it to maybe that wouldn't be so bad but it's the the films they nominate and you're like but there's nothing in it why why have you nominated this there's nothing here it's not like it's a maybe something you'd like disagree on whether you think it's a good performance or a good story or something there is no story there is no performance Leonardo DiCaprio for half the film is lying <laughs> unconscious and there's a bear and I keep going back to that because it's the only thing that has actually any life in it
1: so we so we we're nominating it for the Oscar for Best Bear. <laughs> but the rest of it, we're not, we're not so sold on. That's what we're saying there. That's about the size, sir. we we'll just add, in summation, I think Rich Smith again, SmithG87 on Twitter, says it quite well. The Revenant, nothing really all that special. DiCaprio has had better performances. Indeed. Indeed. Including many films where he's actually had to perform something other than going, ow. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, sir>. Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio has had
0: um, better performances, you know, in basically anything else.
1: That was a dullion. Ooch. Yes, so no great fans of The Revenant are we. We're just going to round things off with a quick rundown on two of the sillier films to come your way in February. Let's start off with Zoolander 2. The sequel sees Ben Stiller returning to the Zoolander character after a long time, and it's a sequel I don't think many people were really crying out for, much as we love the original, and it's proven that it's probably not been a good idea to return back to the well. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that Zoolander 2 is absolutely terrible. It isn't, but it's certainly not a patch on the original outing. We are reintroduced to Zoolander, to Derek Zoolander, as he has gone into a hermit-like existence after the collapse of his school, which led to the death of his wife and setting off a chain of events which saw injuries to his best friend Hansel, played by Owen Wilson. And he's also had his child... Derek Jr. taken away by the social services as he is frankly too stupid to be a father. He is helped out by his friend Billy Zane as he tries to re-enter normal society and return to modelling in style by modelling latest fashion sensation Donatari's latest collection, Donatari played by Kyle Mooney, at the same time as Hansel is trying to return to society after going through a rough patch in his relationship with the orgy that he's been living with since the previous film. But wouldn't you know it, this is all part of a plot by Will Ferrell's evil Mugatu, who's out for revenge after the events of the first film, leading to a variety of increasingly silly scrapes as Mugatu tries to get himself out of prison by manipulating Zoolander and by threatening his child, and so on and so forth. There is a bit more to the plot than that, but I don't think it really warrants an awful lot of attention. The majority of this film is really just a set up for the a variety of gags that don't all fall flat in their face but enough of them do that, that makes me question whether this is really worth your time. Not to say it's completely without merit. Uh, there's some uh, fun turns by Penelope Cruz, and in particular a great turn by Kristen Wiig with her outrageous accent and but the, the best character in it is probably actually Don Atari, right? Kyle Mooney from Saturday Night Live. His quickfire and wildly contradictory verbal soup of insults and compliments is something very funny to behold. However, the two leads just kind of don't convince anymore, I'm afraid. They're clearly doing their best and they're putting an awful lot of effort into their performances here. But unfortunately, the material just doesn't quite... Cut it, it's a little bit derivative, it's a little bit like a tribute act to the first film. It's, it's just not in the same league again, which is not to say it's entirely terrible, it's acceptable enough, it's funny enough to almost be worth your time, but it just cannot live up to the reputation of going after such a cult classic. And this is really just not in the same league. It's It has similar kind of wordplay and little callbacks to the original film that. Makes you desperately want to like the film, but unfortunately it's just not good enough. A disappointingly average outing uh, for the Zoolander cast. Can't help but feel that it would have been better Left Enough Alone. As I say, not the worst film in the world, but really you would be far better served just simply watching the original again. The other ludicrous film that February brings us is of course Deadpool, where Ryan Reynolds plays Wade Wilson, the mercenary with a mouth who, who you may have seen briefly in the previous Wolverine Origins story, but that is only really referenced in this film in order to take the piss out of it, because it is really that kind of film. It is a sort of film where the fourth wall has been dismantled entirely. There is almost no point in actually giving you a review of Deadpool if you haven't seen the trailer. I suggest you go off and do that, and, well, essentially, that is what you'll get. It delivers round about 80% or so of what that trailer promises, both good and bad. So uh, that's probably the best idea, rather than have me dribbling on about it too much. You're introduced to Deadpool in his final mutated form, but it does flash back quite frequently to Wilson's previous life and giving, the, giving him the origin story of how he became Deadpool. After being diagnosed with cancer, he undergoes a torturous process to force a mutation uh, at the hands of Ajax, played by Ed Screen, which was designed to turn him into a slave, but thankfully he's able to fight his way out of that, and then spends his time trying to track down Ajax and exact some kind of revenge. Meanwhile, Ajax is also doing his best to get under Deadpool's skin by kidnapping his best girl. Now, the thing I have about Marvel films of late is that quite often they can be tremendously pole faced Things like the recent Avengers film, the Captain America films, they all take themselves really very seriously indeed, which is kind of silly given that the whole thing is by definition kind of ridiculous but there is the one marvel film each year that issues that and has a little bit of fun things like guardian of the galaxy and ant-man deadpool is certainly this year's contender for the kind of fun marvel film and in my opinion it delivers the goods you have Deadpool almost continually quipping his way throughout his sections. He has some very funny lines, some very funny references. I don't know quite how well the pop culture will age, but it all works for me. I was quite, quite enjoyed most of it. There's some great physical comedy to go along with the R-rated violence, which is not particularly shocking, but it is quite imaginative, quite inventive. And there's also some fantastic interplay between Deadpool and... Colossus and his trainee Negasonic Teenage Warhead, which has to be one of the best mutant names of all time. Lots of nice uh, imaginative action sequences and some really funny bits make the contemporary, if you like, Deadpool action scenes go really enjoyably. The sections told in flashback when it's simply Wade Wilson is somewhat less successful and a lot slower and while not exactly unenjoyable, they're certainly, by comparison, much less amusing and the sections around it which is a bit of a downer for pacing purposes and I don't think the story is actually so interesting enough to be worth it but I think that is balanced out by the tremendous joy that could be had from the sections where Deadpool is just quipping his way and making numerous references to IKEA furniture and other such very strange things. An enjoyable action outing for me, a very enjoyable comic book movie, it's one of the ones I've enjoyed most actually in the recent years. They have been getting somewhat samey and this is certainly a break from the mould and I think it's easy to see why it's been so successful and as we've campaigned for in the past it would be nice to see a return to R-rated action films getting a bit more of an outing so let's hope that the success of this gives people a bit more license to be a bit more uh, brutal in their action scenes going forward. Not to sound shallow but it's a nice thing to see occasionally. So yes, heartily recommend Deadpool and think you should be giving that one a look.
0: So that's our intermission podcast for February. We will be back on 1st of March with a podcast about Stanley Kubrick.
1: Yes, indeed we shall.
0: Yes, so we'll be back on 1st of March with our Kubrick special and till then we bid you adieu. I have been Drew. Scott seems to me has been quite reliably Scott.
1: Indeed I have And I will just say If you disagree Or agree with anything we've got Please feel free Hit us up on Twitter It's at uh, Film. You can email us Podcast at FudsonFilm.com There's a Facebook page Facebook.com Slash Film. Any way you like Just get in touch Give us a shout Give us a name uh, iTunes review if you'd like to That'd be nice but yeah, but yeah If you've got any opinions on films Let us know Get in touch And we'll seek to Get back to you We just look to have Discussions with people About films That's what we're after
0: So if you want to Discuss things with us Give us a shout
1: Until then Catch you later the
0: road. Ta-da! Bye-bye.